I know. Okay, okay. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Thank you for the warm welcome. And uh, well, it's been a long, long time, isn't it? How many years? Five years. Yeah, five years. Five years since I've been your pastor. Five years ago, I left you all in 2014. And... Uh, I actually stepped in once for the worship service, okay, uh, since I returned. I, th- I think it was my second year, no, my first year, first year, okay, and uh, one of those Sundays where I was on annual leave, and uh, I didn't want to sort of uh, attract any attention, so I went to the uh, uh, Hub service there, okay. Um, well, but anyway, it's been a long time, and uh, it feels so nostalgic with, uh, you know, Rakesh and the team leading us in worship. You know, uh, I feel like I'm back again, and uh, Anthony was nowhere. <laughs> no, no, no. He was with me, okay? But I just want to thank the, uh, I think it's an opportunity to thank uh, uh, Pastor Mel, was the one who's responsible to, uh, you know, get me to come back here. Uh, it's not that I'm playing hard to get, okay? i uh, I mean, for me personally as a pastor, I've always understood my priority. And when God has um, appointed me to a local church, you know, my priority is always with the local church. And that is why for the last 12 years when I was at Amokyo, I don't accept many invitations to go outside to preach uh, or even to do church camps. Uh, I only did once in my 12 years with Wesley, and that was also partly to repay my debt to them. Okay? Uh, and other than that, unless it's, like, you know, really, really necessary, I will always, you know, not accept any invitation to speak outside, okay? So just want to let you know that, you know, it's not that I'm, I'm trying hard to get, but I know where my priority. But, well, anyway, your ex-PIC arm-twisted me and said that I need to do my national service. <laughs> and so that's the reason why I'm here. But, of course, I'm thankful also for Pastor Anthony, you know, and he's been following up on the uh, uh, arrangement that been, been agreed upon, and uh, he's been pestering me. And he said, so when, so when, so when, so when? And uh, so eventually, yeah, I said, yes. So thank you again. And thank you also for the leadership uh, for uh, approving this um, speaker to come and speak to all of you. <laughs> okay. Uh, what you have right now, okay, maybe before I go, I need to introduce my family. Some of you don't know my family. Okay, okay how many of you were... Not here when I was the pastor at Amokyo Methodist Church. Can I just see your hands? Okay. All right, just a few of you. The majority of you are here. You know, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so surprised to see so many of you, you know, and I still remember you guys. Some of you are so young and... Uh, I, <laughs> I was young once upon a time. And um, remember also, you know, uh, many of you... I did your, I solemnized your wedding, and now I'm seeing, wow, there's a lot of multiplication, very fruitful. Praise God, Amokyo got hope. <laughs> okay, I want to introduce my family here, okay? Uh, my wife here, okay, and we've been, this is my dear wife for 28 years, we've been married here, Kim. And then my son here, Silas, okay? He's, um, yeah, stand up, please, let him see your face. He's a grown-up boy now, okay? The last time when you guys saw him, he was that young, okay? And my elder one is not here with us because uh, he's working. He's waiting for actually his enlistment, all right? Yeah, going to to the army. Praise God for that, okay? (laughs) Okay, so what you have here is that I'm passing out the handouts, okay? Um, 
Now, I know printed in your bulletin, you have actually an outline that has been printed on my talks. And that was because I was pressured, you know, to come up with something, you know. And that was about a year, I mean, a few months ago, you know. I haven't even prepared anything. All right. All I did was to just give an, you know, uh, the topic, you know, uh, of what I'm going to roughly going to say. And I haven't worked out anything. So it was just in a rush. I had to put something because you guys got to print out the thing. And so what happened is this. I've expanded on that. And so you can discard that. Use this one that I'm putting. Yes. Use the handout that I've uh, given to you. All right. Now, your theme this year is on serving. And so when I was first um, approached to do this, you know, so I started thinking very hard, you know, what, what can I say anything about you know, your theme itself? And the Lord led me you know, to this particular uh, theme down here, or rather the, the, the theme of this retreat, Stewardship and Eternal Destiny. Basically, it is a study of uh, Matthew chapter 24 and 25. Okay, so I'm just going to give you a brief overview of what we're going to do uh, for the next couple of days, okay, to give you an idea what it is. And hopefully by the end of our session together, you'll be fired up and you'll be deeply in love with God and you just want to serve Him, okay? So what we have here is this, okay, the overview of this camp teaching is basically we want to explore what does the Bible say to us about stewardship and our eternal destiny, okay? We're going to explore does our stewardship or our serving or our service matter to God? Isn't it enough just to confess Jesus as our Lord and Savior only, and that's it? Then the rest of the time, you know, we live our life, you know, as usual, whatever it is, you know. Does God really care about the things that we do, how we live our lives here on this earth? And finally, will what we do here on earth have any impact in eternity? And so these are some of the questions we are going to explore, okay, for the next few sessions. Now, for this first session here, okay, the overview, basically, I'm just doing this. Actually, there's a lot. You know, Matthew 24, 25, you know, it's filled with a lot, a lot of stuff down there itself, okay? So I managed to compress everything here and managed to just select what is important for us in this short time that we have and only because I'm given four sessions, okay? And the first session that we're going to talk about is really about the return of the king, and that is Christ's second coming. All right. When was the last time that you guys hear about this topic being preached? I think nowadays most, most of us, you know, we, because it's been 2,000 years since Christ last said that he was coming back. Okay. And sometimes what happens as Christians, you know, as we go through time, go through 2,000 years, you have no news yet. You know, we tend to be lulled into a sense of, you know, um, well, he's not coming back at all. And so some of us not even bothered about that. Okay, so we're going to talk about this because there's an urgency here that I'd like you to see. And this is the context of Matthew 24 and 25. And then we're going to talk about the three parables that Jesus talked about. How do we prepare for His return? So this is just a rough overview. Now for this first session here, it's going to take slightly long. Okay? So you guys are prepared for one hour, right? I understand? I'm going to give it to you guys. Because since you, you know, I've been pressurized for the last week or couple of weeks preparing for all these. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. No, 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 no. <laughs> but it's been taking a lot of time to do this, okay? Uh, and so what happened is this. Um, I'm going to take a little more time in this first subject here. So if any point in time you guys feel tired, you feel, you know, like you want to sleep, like folks just now. Oh, sorry, sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> 
You know whose folks, right? Okay, we will not say the name specifically. Anyway, okay, he's my dearly beloved here. So I missed him and he missed me and that's why he's here. <laughs> so anytime you feel that, you know, you, you, you can't keep up, you know, you want to fall asleep, please feel free, walk around, okay? Uh, and then if you need to take coffee outside, come in here and have a drink and continue listening. That's fine with me, okay? All right, we'll make this very, very informal. Okay, so let's begin right now. And uh, Sulin, can you help me from now onwards and to just do the PowerPoint slide? We're going to begin right now by just reading our scripture text. And I'm going to divide this into two parts, okay? Because it's really, really long for this first chapter. And I'm going to just, in this first session, cover all the almost 50 verses down here. But let's just read from Matthew 24, verses 1, right up to 30 first, okay? We'll focus on this part first. So let me begin. I'll be reading from the New International Version. You can follow that on a PowerPoint. I didn't put that in your handout there because it's too much to just put down there. Okay, let me just read that. Matthew 24, beginning from verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to his buildings. Do you see all these things? He asked. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on the other. Everyone will be thrown down. Now, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered, watch out, that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I'm the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end isn't still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Now all these are the beginnings of birth pangs. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see standing in a holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequal from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equal again. And if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. And that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is a Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. 
So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. And immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. There then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. This is the word of God. Let's pray as we commit this time of listening to God. Father, we come before you today and thank you again for this great opportunity that we could come and be away from our work, our homes, and to spend this next four days, Lord, to just be together with one another, but more importantly, to listen to what you have to say to us. And so we thank you for the safe journey here. And now even as we continue on, Lord, to prepare ourselves to listen to your word, we ask humbly, Lord, that you will take away all kinds of distraction. And Lord, whatever tiredness that we may have also, may you take that away and refresh us once again. Fill us with the Holy Spirit and enable us to be able to have a receptive heart, a malleable heart, a heart that will receive your word. And we pray for your preacher that you will use him too, Lord, for your purpose and for your glory. For we pray this and give thanks to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, there are a few things in Christian life that is as fascinating as prophecy. But on the other hand, prophecy can also be problematic. You see, prophecy is fascinating because most people would like to know the future. Okay? And I believe you're honest with yourself, you know, in the heart of hearts, you know, most of you would like to be able to know the future, what it holds for you, particularly, you know, if you're going through a very difficult time, you know, a time perhaps, you know, you're suffering and you're being tormented, you want to be able to know, you know, whether this is going to last at all. And so the future, knowing the future is something that you would like to know. Some of us, you know, like to know it because out of fear, for example, you know, we want to like, like I say, you know, we want to avoid life's difficulties or tragedies. But some of us perhaps would like to know the future because we want to plan for it successfully. For example, you know, if, just imagine if you can have a glimpse to know what the stock market will be like in a few months or a few years to come, time, time to come. You know, if you have all these insider's knowledge, you know, would it be well? Will it be good? You know, you will be wealthy, isn't it? And yet for others, they would like to know the future simply because... Of curiosity. In other words, they would like to be on the inside track, as it were. And because of that, you know, throughout the years, you find, even, you know, um, particularly amongst the Christian community, you know, Christians speculate about the future, in particular about Christ's second coming. And so, this is a part down here. And so, as you look around, you know, from time to time, particularly in the turn of you know, the century, you, know, you always have this, this, what we call millennial fever. 
So at every turn of the millennium, you will have, you know, uh, Christians, you know, starting to ask themselves whether, you know, this is going to be the end, whether Christ is going to come, you know, this time. And so in the last turn of the century, you know, there's a lot of these kind of speculations, okay? The other thing that makes prophecy difficult is also because prophecy, some, most of the time, are difficult to understand because they are very vague, and it contain, you know, a number of cryptic language, metaphors, and sometimes we find it hard to decipher. You know, one of the famous prophecies of the Greek oracle is at Delphi are some examples of that. For example, it was once said that an oracle once told a king that if he went into a battle, he would destroy a great empire. And when the king received this, he assumed that it was the empire of the enemy. And so what happened? With that confidence, he went out to war. Unfortunately, he was defeated. And he realized later that the kingdom prophesied that was destroyed was actually not the enemy, but his own kingdom. And so for this reason, you know, sometimes prophecy is difficult. And not to mention, you know, like I said again, you know, they contain a lot of cryptic symbols, messages that are really, really sometimes difficult to understand. Now, in this passage of Scripture that I've just read for you, Matthew chapter 24, we are told that Jesus' disciples were curious about the future. And they began to question Jesus, you know. And this is where it provided for Jesus a famous teaching about the last things recorded in both this chapter, chapter Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. And it is commonly called the Olivet Discourse because it took place at Mount of Olives. And if you are familiar with the Gospel of Matthew, you know, Matthew basically grouped his teaching, the, the teaching of Jesus, into six collections. And so this is the last of the six collections of Jesus' teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, this is an important part of the Gospel, but this is also a passage. And together with its parallels, we will find the parallels in the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Matthew, Mark 13 and Luke chapter 21. Now, this passage has puzzled and divided Bible scholars and teachers throughout the last 2,000 years of church history. And in particular, you know, we have what we call the, the millennium debate. And those of you who are familiar, you know, whether it's premillennium, it's amillennium, or postmillennium, you know, so on and off, you know, there have been various, various opinions on all these. Now, because of time, we are not going to dwell into all these, you know, this particular subject and discuss the various, various views, okay? So what I like to do for us is this, is simply to provide a very straightforward answer based on the answer that Jesus gave to his disciples on when he will return. Now, Jesus gave very clearly four signs. Four signs of his return. And the reason the Lord tells his disciples about the future, remember this, it was not to satisfy their curiosity. Although, we can speculate that the disciples wanted to know because they were curious. Alright? I want you to remember this important thing. The one thing about biblical prophecy is this. Prophecies in the Bible about the future is always given for the purpose of affecting our behavior in the present. You see, every Bible passage that I ever studied with a message about end times always comes in the context of warning as well 
as exalting our behavior in the present. And this must never, never be forgotten. You see, one of the trouble with modern day Christians is this, you know, they're just fascinated with, with prophecy about the future. But they don't realize is this, the important part why God or Jesus gives us these prophecies is really God wants us and exhort us. You know, He wants to affect our behavior in the present. It's not to just give you out of curiosity. So, in this case, it is no exception as well. When Jesus prophesied about His return, He was not only telling them, the disciples, about the future, but He was at the same time exalting them to get ready for His return. He's telling them basically, don't be caught unprepared for the future and panic. And importantly, He was exalting them how they should behave while awaiting for His return so that they will not be taken by surprise. So quickly, what are the four signs that Jesus gave about His return? Well, let me just say that of the four signs, I believe one is already here. But let me just do a little digression, okay? Let me just say that none of the signs that Jesus gives is about Israel, except for the third, when He mentioned Jerusalem. Now, I wish to say from the onset that I think today, there are far too many Christians who are too fascinated with what is happening in Israel. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes I think what happens is this, they just spend too much time, you know, thinking about all the events that's happening in Israel, speculating about, and then because of that, they speculate Jesus' return. And these, what happens is this, it leads even to more confusion. Let me just say that the events, the events that's happening right now in Israel was in no way said to be a sign of the Lord's return. Because not once did Jesus tell us, look at all the events that's happening in Israel. He didn't say that. He didn't mention that as a sign. The only sign was Jerusalem. The only thing, the city of Jerusalem. That's all. All the others and that's why sometimes I think we spend so much time that we forget about this. All right? And notice also, for what has happened in the last few decades in Israel. Now, we do admit, there are other parts of the prophecy, particularly from the Old Testament, prophesizing about the return of the Israel. Now, I'm not discounting that. Okay? What I'm saying to you is this, that from Jesus' lips... The events that are happening in Israel is not one of the signs of His return. Okay? And it will happen according to all the Old Testament prophets. So we want to just focus mainly here on what Jesus says. Alright? So let's look at what are, the first, what are the four signs. The first sign is found actually in the world. The second sign, Jesus says, is found in the church. The third sign, Jesus says, as I mentioned, is found in Jerusalem. Okay? Not Israel, but Jerusalem. The city of uh, the city of Jerusalem. And then the final sign is found in the sky. So let's go over this quickly. Let's look at the first sign that's found in the world. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verses 6 to 8, He says this, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pangs. 
Now, notice that the first sign that Jesus gives us here is really about things that are happening in the world. And if you like, disasters in our world. One, man-made. The other two, natural. Okay, Wars. Wars are man-made. Okay, famines. Famines could be also both natural or man-made. Okay, and then earthquakes. Now, all these three disasters, let me just say this, have been happening for the last 2,000 years since Jesus mentioned it. And according to the New Times report, of the past 3,400 years, human beings have only been at peace for 268 of that, or just 8% of recorded history. And at least 108 million people were killed in wars in the 20th century. And at this moment, what happened is this. There are more than 40 active conflicts or wars around the world. And if you look at nowadays, you know, wars are also becoming more sophisticated because wars now use technology. They use technology to kill people. You know, planes right now can be sent deep into countries without any kind of human beings on board and they are loaded with bombs, drones. And so the truth is, wars will get worse. And the next is earthquakes. Earthquakes also seem to be increasingly frequent. And partly, of course, you know, I think it's, it's due to our social media, the internet. With the advent of internet, now unlike previous generation, what happened is this, you know, news or things that are happening, you know, halfway across the globe itself, we have real-time access, you know, within a couple of minutes, you know, we will know what's happening, you know, in places that is halfway across the world from Singapore. And the other truth is also this, that earthquakes also have been increasing in intensity as well as damage. And because why? Because today, there are now more people living in the world. And of course, in those areas, you know, that are having all the earthquake fault lines, we find that cities are being built. For example, in LA, you know, this is one of the, the greatest, one of the greatest fault lines actually lies in California. And one day, people, you know, scientists are predicting that there'll be a big and major earthquake that devastate that city down there. Okay, and famines also have been here with us for a very, very long time. Okay, but it is also swinging from one extreme to an another. And certainly global warming and all the world's weather, you know, is affecting all this crop production. And so things are going to get from bad to worse. Now, so this is something that's not new. But it is increasing in intensity. And so Jesus' advice us to, us, to us is this. His advice to us, when you hear of all this, do not be alarmed. And his word to us here is this. The end is still not there. So even with all these intensities, you know, of all the, the wars and famines and earthquakes, Jesus is not coming yet. And Jesus says this about, these are birth pangs. Birth pangs of a new world to be born. In other words, we're experiencing just the beginning of something and not the end of something. And thus, we should not be alarmed or dismayed or depressed by what we hear. Instead, we should remain calm. And of course, when all these disasters happen, if within our means and within our ability, we should be able to, we should help people that are involved, I mean, who are affected by all these disasters. Okay, so that's the first sign. The second sign that Jesus mentioned about his return is found in the church. Now, in Matthew 24, 9, 14, Jesus says, Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, 
many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. And because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, this second sign here that's found in the church, in the church, has three parts to it. The first part of it is this, that Jesus tells us that in the last days, the first thing that will happen to the church is that there will be universal persecution of Christians. Jesus is warning us that Christians will be persecuted and hated in every nation. In other words, it is not just sporadic. Now, what we are seeing today here is this. It's still sporadic. All right? I mean, there are many, many places in this world down here you know that there are Christians being persecuted. But increasingly what happens is you find, you know, there are many countries right now, you know, that are persecuting Christians. For example, you know, the last, uh, I mean, the last couple of years what happened is this. I don't know whether you have experienced it here, but India is one country, okay, that recently have become tighter, you know, in controlling uh, the activities of Christianity, particularly for, for you know, uh, foreigners coming to the country to uh, do mission work. In fact, just a couple of months ago at Wesley, you know, we sent a team, uh, beginning of the year, we sent a team up to India, and uh, they were stopped. They were actually, uh, you know, when they were in the hotel, they said the police came and actually stopped them and asked them to leave immediately. So we, we, we were sent back, all right? And so what we're going to see here is this, that in the last days, it's not going to be sporadic, but it's going to be a universal persecution of Christians. And so Jesus is warning us right up here, Okay, to be prepared. Okay, the second thing is this that Jesus says to us is this that the sign is happening in church that in the last days there will also be a great falling away in the church. In other words, what he's saying is this in the last days there will be many Christians that will give up their faith. Okay. Verse 10 says, In that time many will turn away from their faith and will betray and hate each other. Now, there can be many reasons why Christians fall away from their faith. One, of course, is persecution. And it's not something that's strange. If you look at church history, whenever persecution breaks out itself, you know, you find that you know, Christians sometimes you know, will betray each other in order to save their own skin. All right? And so this will happen itself. And if Christians don't fall away from you know, such things, you know, Jesus says that many Christians perhaps will become lukewarm. And you know, one of the first things that happen for a lukewarm Christian, when persecution starts, the first one, to give up their faith with those who are not, I mean, who are just nominal Christian. They will be the one who will leave the church. And so Jesus here predicts to us and told us beforehand that there will be a great falling away of faith in the church. The third part of this sign is that Jesus tells us that many false prophets will appear in the church. Now, let me underscore this important point here. You know, I believe the real danger as we get to the end is this, and that is deception. Deception outside the church, deception inside the church particularly. And Jesus, Jesus says in the end time, false Christ, false prophets will appear to present themselves as saviors to the world in the midst of all these disasters that are happening in the world. Now, listen carefully. You know, between false messiahs and false prophets, I believe 
the greater danger for the church is not false messiah, but rather false prophets. You see, false messiahs can't do much damage to the church because we can easily spot them. For example, if anyone comes here and says, look, I'm Jesus Christ. <laughs> What's your immediate reaction? Xiao. <laughs> I think if you go IMH, you might find a few of them like that. Okay? It's not surprising. So most of us will immediately be on our guard if someone says, you know, I'm Jesus Christ. Most of us will be on our guard. Alright? So I think in the in the end times, the danger is not false messiah. The danger is false prophets. Because they are the ones who will do great damage to the church. And we know what the Bible says, what false prophets are and what they teach. And one of the things that the Bible tells us is that these false prophets will teach peace where there is no peace. And their message is always one of comfort rather than challenge. Their message will always be, you know, it's, it's okay, everybody's okay, you know, everything's good, positive message, you know, and so they, they, they don't want to deal anything, you know, to talk about judgment, anything negative or anything like that. For example, you know, the Apostle Peter, he wrote of the presence of false prophets in the last days, saying in Second Peter chapter 2, 1, he says, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. And then again in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 to 4, he says, In the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, Where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes. And then, you know, he will. So this is a danger down here. In the last days, these prophets will teach all these kinds of messages peace, comfort. And the Apostle Paul also warns us in. 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1, he says, The Spirit clearly says that in the later days, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits, things taught by demons. Or again, there will be terrible times in the days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, so on and so forth. Okay? And these false prophets, you know, may rise up and continue to comfort people saying that, no, it's okay. And one of the characteristics of false prophecy is that they comfort people only without telling the other side of the story. You know, in the Word of God, we thank God that God has given a lot of promises about comforting His people. But there's another side of the Gospel too that reminds us that God also has pronounced judgment on His people whenever they're going astray. And what makes these false prophets dangerous is because sometimes it's very hard to discern their message. Particularly when they move in signs and wonders. Now, I'm not against signs and wonders. And I believe miracles, signs and wonders are still very much present in our church today and the Holy Spirit is working mightily. I'm not against that. But what I've discovered over the years is this, that, you know, people who move in this area, particularly when they're touched by ministries of these prophets who move in signs and wonders, once they're touched by the ministry and they are healed or experience something miraculous through the ministry of these prophets, it's very hard to change their minds. And if they're so touched by these people, you know, they come to a point with time where they just blindly follow them. You know, a case, a good example would be this person by the name of Todd Bentley. I don't know how many of you know this name, Todd Bentley. 
Some of you may know his name, but some of you may not. But let me just tell you who he is. Todd Benley was a Canadian evangelist. And in April 2008, he began a series of revival meetings in Lakeland, Florida, America. And as a result of that, it began, you know, began a, a revival. A revival broke out. The Holy Spirit you know, moved powerfully. Where tens of thousands of people attended and, were, and encountered miraculous healing. And the event became famously known as the Lakeland Revival. But what happened is this. By August 2008, Todd Bentley became embroiled in some controversy. Firstly, he announced that he had divorced his wife. And later it was discovered that he had been having an extramarital affair with one of his staff members. And then according to an article published in Charisma magazine in 2008, the editor, Lee Grady, and this is what he wrote about Todd Bandley after the, ex- the expose. Lee Grady asked, Why did so many people flock to Lakeland from around the world to rally behind an evangelist who had serious credibility issues from the beginning? And so they were seeking answers. Why so many people, in spite of what he is, you know, his character is flawed, why are people still flocking there? And Lee Grady answers himself. To put it bluntly, we're just plain gullible. For the first week of the Lakeland Revival, many discerning Christians raised questions about Bentley's beliefs and practices. They felt uneasy when he said he talked to an angel in his hotel room. They sensed something amiss when he wore a t-shirt with a skeleton on it. They wondered why a man of God would cover himself with tattoos. They were horrified when they heard him describe how he tackled a man and knocked his tooth out during prayer time. But among those who jumped on the Lakeland bandwagon, discernment was discouraged. They were expected to swallow and follow. The message was clear. This is God. Don't question. I blame this lack of discernment partly on raw zeal for God. And Lee Grady goes on to say, we are spiritually hungry, which can be a good thing. But sometimes, hungry people will eat anything. Hungry people will eat anything. So you see, church, we need to watch out for false prophets and false leaders. And again, like I said, I'm not against signs and wonders and miracles. And I believe that God still works powerfully in our generation through signs and wonders. But we need to be very carefully, be discerning and careful so that we are not easily awed and swayed by people who move in signs and wonders without having any kind of discernment about their character, about their beliefs. Because Jesus wants us here in uh, Matthew 7, 15 and 16. He says what? Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. And Jesus said, well, how will you recognize them? By their fruit, you will recognize, recognize them. And so what basically Jesus is saying, don't be awed by just the miraculous work that they do, but watch also for their character. Watch also how they do ministry and see what kind of fruit it bears. Because in the last days, we will really need to have God's discernment, discernment upon us. We need to discern whether the signs that are given to us are divine or demonic. So the warning given here to Jesus is don't be led astray. The greatest danger in the last days will be this, that is that we will be misled. 
You know, the trouble with deception is this. Deception is actually this, what? It's a subtle mix of what? Truth and error. You know, friends, if we can clearly see something that is wrong, if we can see something that's clearly evil, most of us will just run away. But you know, the way the devil works is this. He's smart enough. He knows that if he appears in his raw form, all of you will be frightened away. And that is why the Bible says what? That Satan disguised himself as an angel of light. And as a result of that, what happened is this. This has implication. And so he knows that if he, you know, if people are not convinced. You know, I mean, people are, can easily see if it's pure error. But what happened? But when error is mixed with the truth, you can't really tell the difference. And so you'll be fooled by lies but you will not be fooled by half-truths. That's where it's difficult. So the only way that we can protect ourselves you know, from being deceived, one of the things that we need to do is this. We need to know the Word of God. And that's why it's so important for us to know the Word of God. Now, I wonder if I would ask this question down here. How many of you? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. Okay, if you say you love Jesus, the Word of God is so important to you, how many of you have actually read the Bible from cover to cover? Genesis to Revelation. Now, if you have not done that, then I think you owe yourself a duty to at least read the Word of God from cover to cover so that at least you know what the Word of God is all about. Okay? And the first handle to you is this. You know, I mean, I know there are many, many passages of Scripture that you may not understand, but don't worry about these things. The important thing is this. Read at least once through. At least you have a big picture, you know. So when people talk to you about, you know, where's the parable of uh, uh, the Samaritans, you know, where, oh, roughly this is in the, new, uh, the gospel itself. And somebody says in Hezekiah chapter 3 verse 16, ha, huh, you know. You know, you know where's Hezekiah 3 16? How many of you know what's Hezekiah 3 16? There's no such thing. La. <laughs> There's no book, Hezekiah. Very hot. <laughs> okay, so you need to know the Word of God. And that's one of the things, you know, as we go through the last days there, that is one of God's weapon that's been given to you so that you can discern between half-truths, deception, lies. And that's how you can keep yourself straight, okay? And so here we have all the three signs that's been given to you, okay? Or rather, it's two signs, Okay. And here, and the second sign here, sorry, this is a th- third sign, right? And I'm getting more confused already. Wait. Okay. Uh, second, first, second, third. Okay, many fall third sign. And the last sign here, okay, aside from the thing here, the final of this second sign is that the gospel will be preached to every ethnic group. Now, we thank God, you know, the last few um, centuries or other decades, you know, we have made a lot of progress. A lot of countries have been reached through the gospel, you know, of God's word itself, but there's still a number of countries and you know and people group that have not been reached yet, and there's, there's still a lot more work to do. All right. So, one of the definitive signs that G- the return of Christ is imminent here is this: these are the four things that you will find, okay, in the church itself. One, it is that there will be universal persecution of Christians. Second, there will be a great falling away of Christians. The third sign is that many false prophets and Messiah will arise, and finally the gospel will be preached to all the earth. 
Alright, so that's the second sign found in the church. The third sign that Jesus mentioned about the last days is distress in Jerusalem. Alright? From verses 5 to 21, Jesus quotes from the book of Daniel about this person called the abomination that causes desolation. Now, what does this phrase mean? The phrase that Jesus quoted, alright, is used in the book of Daniel. Daniel used it at least three times. Three times in his prediction about the, about the future. Daniel used this phrase, the abomination of desolation. What does this phrase mean? Well, actually, it's really quite an inadequate translation in the English to capture the, the horror of that Hebrew phrase. Basically, what it means, it means something like this. It means something so disgusting, something so abhorrent and so offensive. That's the meaning of the abomination of desolation. Now, this prophecy that Jesus mentioned was actually fulfilled once already. And that is 160 years before Christ. So let me just give you some understanding here. Bible scholars and teachers have concluded that this phrase, the abomination that causes desolation, was fulfilled, and this prophecy was fulfilled actually in the person of Antiochus Epiphanes. Now who was he? Antiochus Epiphanes was the king of Syria who invaded Jerusalem in the year 167 BC because he was determined to stamp out Judaism because he wanted to introduce the Greek religion and Greek practices or the Greek culture. And so what happened was this. He entered into Jerusalem and there was a great massacre of young and old, killing of women and children and slaughter of, you know, of young, uh, young people, infants in Jerusalem. And in a space, it was said, that in the space of three days, in the book of 2 Maccabees, it recorded 80,000 Jews were lost. 40,000 met a violent death. And the same number was also sold into slavery. And if that was not enough, Antiochus did one more last thing, which was an unspeakable thing to the Jew. And that is he went into the temple, he ransacked the, the, the Jerusalem temple, and he erected an altar dedicated to the Greek god, god Zeus. And he sacrificed a pig on the altar. And only that, what happened is this, he turned the whole temple into a place of prostitution. All he did this was that he wanted to stamp out the Jewish religion. And he occupied Jerusalem exactly for three and a half years. And most scholars believe that there will be a second fulfillment of this prophecy again. And so, what Jesus is warning us here is this, that there will be a second fulfillment. And the Bible tells us that there will be an antichrist figure. This abomination that causes desolation is actually an antichrist figure. He's also known as the man of lawlessness mentioned in Paul's letter in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, all referring to the same person. This antichrist or the man of lawlessness will be a world dictator. And notice here, even when this particular antichrist appears on the scene, the end is not here yet. Christ says he has not come yet. 
So basically saying to you, if you see this man appearing, stay where you are. Okay? Christians have not gone out of this world. Christian has not been raptured. Well, anyway, let me just mention to you, the word rapture, I personally believe, is not biblical. Okay? Just to give you some idea, you know, since the 1830s, there's been this false teaching that says, you know, Christian will escape persecution, and, oh, and when the great persecution comes, Christian will be raptured away. Now, let me just say this in short, that there is really no biblical evidence to suggest this. The rapture theology is basically built on a series of logical deduction. And the study of end times should be appropriately called eschatology. But what happened is this, you know, people promote this rapture theology. They are trying to promote a theology called escapatology. You know what's that? Escapism. Basically this, you know. So, in other words, you know, when this kind of theology teaches us that when a great persecution comes, you know, Christians will be totally be absorbed. They're mistaken out. You will not suffer anything. You will not be, you know, going through all these difficulties. Now, this is not true. Okay? You know, Corey Tembun, if you've heard this name, you know that this is a, a Jewish, or a German, okay? Corey Tembun was a German. Her family actually hid Jews in their home in false walls. And eventually what happened is this, when the, the Nazi, the Gestapo came, you know, they were betrayed actually by a, by a family friend. And so the Nazi came. The father was actually a solid Christian. But what happened? They were arrested and the whole family was taken to the concentration camp. And as a result, that none of them survived except for Corrie Tambun. And later on, of course, when she was finally freed and God, you know, gave her a powerful ministry, she had an opportunity actually to go to China. And when she went to China, you know, you know it broke her heart because she found many Christians there suffering very greatly. And what happened to these Christians was this. They were taught by the American missionaries that God will take them out of their trouble. And yet in spite of all that, you know, they were experiencing the pain and persecution. And some of them, because they cannot take it anymore, you know, their faith wavered. They fall away from their faith. And when Cody Tenmon see that kind of thing happening, you know, she made up her mind that she will go around her world and tell Christians as she shares this testimony, to prepare Christians for the great trouble because she says that she'd rather tell them to be ready for trouble than not. And so it's important for us to remember here, in the last days here, Christians will not be spared. For the last 2,000 years, you know, if you look at the church history, whenever terrible persecution breaks out, there are many Christians who suffered. And one of the things that keep them strong is this, because a lot of them had a theology of suffering. They understand what it is to suffer for Christ. And that's the result. You know, many of them were able to maintain that stability in their faith and in spite of that suffering, still remain faithful to Christ till the end. So that's the third sign. The third sign. The first sign is found in the world. The second sign in the church. The third sign in Jerusalem. The fourth sign that Jesus tells the disciples that is this. The final sign would be you know, there will really be no danger of false prophets or Messiah because the end will suddenly just come, immediately. And how will this happen? Jesus says basically is this, the sun will go down. All natural lights will go out. The sun and the stars and the moons will not shine anymore. In other words, the world will be plunged into total darkness. And this is all happening in the sky. There will be no more natural light. 
And then when that happens, Jesus will immediately appear and we will meet him in the air. That's the return of Christ. And that is why Jesus reminds us, this is the last part now here that's important for us to understand. Because in this last part, when the natural lights all go out, there'll be no warning. Okay? And so there'll be no danger of false Christ appearing and telling you all these things, or false Messiah. Because it will be so immediate. And over the years, what happened is, is because, you know, there's plenty of prediction about the date of Jesus' return. But thus far, nobody has been successful. You know what? We need to be reminded that Jesus tells us very clearly that no one knows about the hour or the date of his return. We need to be clear about this. So anytime that you hear people telling you that they know a specific date of Jesus' return, don't be fooled. I don't know many, how many of you heard of this name called Harold Camping. Is it? Harold Camping. How many of you know this name? Harold Camping? Okay, some of you have heard his name. Okay, if you don't know him, well, he's an American Christian radio host and one of the founders of Family Radio, a Christian-based network that spreads the Word of God all over the world. Camping made his first prediction of Christ's return at the end of the world. He says it was going to happen on the 4th of September, 4th or 6th of September, 1994. But of course, we know it didn't happen. And so what happened? He went back to his books, read the Bible again, and he revised it. And he gave the next date of prediction was this, May 21st, 2011, a few years ago. Of course, we know that didn't happen because you and I are still here. <laughs> okay? And when it didn't happen, what he, he made revision again. He revised it to what? 21st of October, 2011. And again, that didn't happen. You know, like many would-be prophet, this camping just moved the target each time he was wrong. And after the October 2011 date passed, camping finally just gave up. Okay? And shortly after, he, before he died in 2013, okay, after suffering a massive uh, complication from a fall at home, he publicly he apologized to all his followers for misleading them. So the point I'm making to all of us here is this. We need to be very, very careful. Whenever we hear of preachers telling us, giving us a date of Jesus' return, then we must be very, very careful to understand that likely that's a false prophecy. Because Jesus gave us very, very clearly that when the final sign appears to us, in the sky, when all natural lights goes down and the world is plunged in total darkness, Jesus will just immediately return. Now, let me just say this also. There's a question here. That how do we reconcile the fact that Jesus said in Matthew 24, 33, that you will know that the end is near, and yet in verse 36, he says, no one knows the day of His coming, but only the Father. Now, how do we understand this apparent contradiction? On one hand, He says that you know, and yet, no one knows. Well, if you look at the first half of Matthew chapter 24, let me just say this, it deals with signs that are really not 
true signs of Jesus' return. Okay, remember? The first three signs are what? Found in the world. Famine, earthquakes, so on and so forth. Third, second one, in the church. Universal persecution, so on and so forth. Okay? The third one, Jerusalem. Okay? Now, these three signs, when you see these three signs all happening, well, the reason why I say they're not true signs is because this. Jesus says, if you see these three signs happening, his return is still not yet there. In other words, the first three signs in the world, in the church and Jerusalem, are signs of his imminent return, but not his immediate return. There's a difference between imminent and immediate. All right? And only when the last sign appears in the sky, that's almost immediate. All right? So Jesus is basically telling us, the point is clear, when this last sign appeared on this earth, on this, on this earth down here, where there's total darkness, if you had not been preparing all this time, it would be too late. It would be too late. So the first three signs, at least you still have chance to make your preparation. But when this last line appear, and you don't know when it will appear, okay, but when it appear, it's sudden, immediate. That's it. Finito. That's the end. You've got no opportunity for any kind of preparation. So if you've prepared all your life for this moment itself, praise the Lord. You know, if you're still alive, okay? But if you have never prepared yourself as a Christian and all the time you have been nominal, that day will be a terrible day for you. Okay? So, here we have the first part of this Matthew 24. Now, I'm basically setting up for you for the next three sessions what is going to happen here. Alright? Because this is important because all these other three, the next three talks will be based upon this context here. Jesus is talking about His return. And the more important here is this. After telling Him, telling all of us here about the signs of His return, He didn't didn't just leave us there. He's telling us, then how do we prepare for His return? Because time and time again, Jesus says, be prepared, be ready. Okay? And so what we're going to hear after this here is that Jesus will be teaching us how to prepare for His return. And so, let me just begin the second part now here quickly as I summarize and bring this time of sharing to a close quickly. After this part here, Jesus gives basically, okay, this second part here. Let's read that together. Okay, maybe I'll just read it for our sake because if not, it'll be taking a long time. Alright? It says here from verse 36, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage, up to, day, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand meal. One will be taken and the other left. And Jesus says this, Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had, not, had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour that you do not expect Him. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom the Master has put in charge of the servants in His household to give them their food at the proper time? 
It will be good for that servant whose masters find him doing so when he returns. Truly I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possession. The master of that servant will come on that day when he does not expect him and in an hour he's not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of thief. So what Jesus is basically telling us here in this second half of Matthew chapter 24, after giving us the signs of his return, he's telling us how, he's giving us four pictures, okay, to tell us how to get ready. The first picture is a picture of the Noah's, the days of Noah. Basically, in this picture here, what Jesus is saying to us here, if you remember what the scripture has been read, that the flood came suddenly, and those who were not prepared were drowned. And you know, in that particular story here, who were the only one that was saved? Noah and his whole family. But the rest of them, other people, were drowned. So on that day, Jesus mentioned, as he mentioned about the days of Noah, that there will be people who will just go on business as usual. They will not even know that end time has arrived. And as a result, they were caught unprepared. And that's the reason why many of them drowned. In the second picture, okay, uh, here, it's important to note here that uh, one of the things that um, uh, this bishop, Rye, John Rye, an Anglican bishop, once said this, the world will not be converted when Christ returns. Millions of professing Christians will be found thoughtless, unbelieving, godless, Christless, worldly, and unfit to meet their judge. So the first picture that Jesus gives to us is that that will exactly what be happening in the last days itself. And so we need to be mindful of that, that we, are, we, will, that we do not belong to the majority of people that are caught unaware and treat life as usual. And when Jesus returns, you don't even know what hit you. And it's going to be a terrifying day. Okay? Now, the second picture that Jesus gives to us is this. Can you? Uh, yeah. About this picture of two men and two women, one taken up and one left behind. Here in this picture, what Jesus is doing for us is describing for us the nature of things at His return. Here we find the whole idea of sudden separation. Two women or two men working in a field, they could be co-workers, two women working with a hand mill, probably closely related to one another, most, maybe perhaps a mother and a daughter, or two servants in the same household. Now, outwardly, they would seem to be identical situation, even identical in their relationship in Christ. But at his return, one will be taken away, one will be left behind. Question is, is this, what does it mean to be taken away? What does it mean to be left behind? And this is where the rapture theology builds on this, okay? That is, those who are taken away are Christians. Those who are left behind are unbelievers. You suffer, you know, for the three and a half years. But let me just say this, okay? I don't believe that this view is correct. I believe the New Test, the, the explanation provided by one of my professors in uh, Asbury, Dr. Ben Wernerinton, I think he's correct. He mentioned that those who are taken away are those who are taken away in judgment. Now, how do I substantiate this? 
Well, he explained basically this, because you need, you need to read the Bible in the context. You don't interpret the Bible by, you know, logical deduction, you know, or just pluck the verse by itself, stand alone. Like my professor always says, you know, a text without a context is always a pretext for you to mean anything you want to mean. You get what I mean? A, te- a, a text without a context is a pretext for you to mean whatever you want to mean. And so we need to be very careful. And that's the reason why it's important for you to study your Bible in context. Interpret it within the context here. So within the context here, all right, what was Jesus comparing this taking away to? He was comparing it to Noah's days. Noah's days. So the question is this, in the flood that came in Noah's day, who were taken away by the flood? All those people who were just going about business as usual, and probably a lot of unbelievers, and they were taken away in what? In judgment. And who were the ones who who were saved in the days of Noah? Noah and his family. And so this is it here, that we need to be very careful, this picture that Jesus gives us. The point of this second picture is also this, that Jesus is saying that people who are intimately associated with one another will be separated by the unexpected coming of Christ. One will be taken away, one will be left behind. And he means basically this. This picture basically tells us that not everyone will be saved. The truth is this. When the end times come, when Jesus comes back again, there will be many people who will be lost. And this is frightening. Okay? We need to note also that no one will be saved simply being close or even related to another person who is a Christian. So in this picture here, it's very clear. Jesus is saying to us, salvation is not a hereditary kind of matter. You know, you know because you're born in a Christian family, you are a Christian. And you, Lord, you know, I, my, my mother and my father serve in a church. You know, so I, you, know, you, you should accept me. Well, I'm telling you, it's not going to do this. Jesus is not going to accept that. And so we need to be very careful. We need to accept the faith for ourselves. And so today, if there's any one of you here, you know, if you're living off your parents' faith, you're living off your family's faith, let me say, this is not good for you. You have to personally come and accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So that's the second picture that Jesus gives to us. The third picture that Jesus gives to us is a thief breaking into a house. And notice this picture teaches us also about the sudden and unpredictable coming of God. Because when does a thief come into your house? Do you know when a thief comes to your house? Most of the time you don't. I mean, if you know, you'll be prepared. And that's what Jesus is saying. If you know that the thief is coming to your house, you will be prepared. And the thief is not so stupid, of course. I mean, the thief will say, hey, I'm coming to your house tonight, huh? 12 o'clock. Huh? <laughs> They will come unannounced, sudden, where you least expect them. And so this imagery is also reminding us again that the Lord's coming is like a thief in the night. Because Paul wrote, for example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, he said, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 2 Peter chapter 3, 10, he says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then in Revelation, if you remember, Revelation chapter 3, verse 3, it says, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. And then in Revelation chapter 16, verse 15, he says what? Jesus says, Behold, I come like a thief. And so, 
in all these verses you find here the emphasis on the sudden return of Christ. But the image of the thief also adds two more things that we need to take note. The first is this. It talks about value. You know, when a thief comes into your home, what does he do? Of course, he comes to your home to steal something that is valuable. All right? Which thief comes to your home that steals something that's not valuable? All right? So that's the thing. So almost everyone values his or her position. No one is callous about money, cars, jewelry. And that's why you lock all these things up. So we have safe deposit boxes. We install anti-theft devices, alarms on our cars. We ensure so that all our valuable possessions will be taken care of. Now, what is the point that Jesus is making? The point that Jesus is making is this, and that is, if we take such great care over all these items that will never last, that will decay over time, shouldn't we at least be more careful about the things that are eternal? And importantly, shouldn't we be more concerned for the salvation of our souls? Earlier, on, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16 verse 26, if you remember, he says, what good will be it for a man if he gains the whole world, but he loses his soul? And such people will only lose, you know, if you gain the whole world, but you lose your soul, you are the most pathetic person in this world. Just remember. And the second picture that the thief emphasized for us is the necessity of being watchful. You see, Jesus emphasizes in verse 42, he says what? Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know what day your Lord will come. And then also in verse 44, it says what? So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour where you do not expect Him. So the question is this, are you ready for Jesus' coming? You know, all these four pictures, each of this, these pictures are alike. In a sense, it all stressed on the sudden and unpredictable nature of Jesus' return. But at the same time, each of that picture that Jesus presents to us has a unique lesson or element in it. What are they? The picture of the Noah's flood, what does it remind us? It reminds us that many people will be lost on that day. The second thing, the picture of the two women working in the field, the two women grinding in the mill points, it points to what? A radical separation that reminds us that we are not safe by knowing or being close to a Christian or to a believer. The third picture of a thief reminds us that our souls are infinitely, infinitely valuable and that is simple prudence for us to be ready and take care of that which is most important. The final picture that Jesus gives to us is the contrast between two servants. One, a faithful servant. The other, an unfaithful one. Now, in this last picture here, if you look carefully down here, not much is talked about the faithful servant. All we know that this faithful servant was a faithful servant and he was ready when the master returned. But there was a lot that was talked about what is being unfaithful. And so as I 
close my time of sharing here. Three things here I'd like to remind us of the unfaithful servant. What was he guilty of? What made him unfaithful? The first thing that was mentioned to us is this, that he was callous. In verse 48, Jesus says about this servant, he says that, you know, my master is staying away from a long time. And so because he had this idea that the master was not returned, so what happened? He was callous. And so he neglected what he was doing. He was entrusted with an tr- with a, with a assignment, a task, to look after the master's home. But because he thought his master is going away for a long time, or oh, relax lah, you know, kiao ka, don't do anything. And so he was basically callous. And the second thing here was this, that's mentioned that this servant was unfaithful because of his cruelty. Because it says what? In verse 49, that this particular servant, because he thought his master is long in coming, and so he started to ill-treat his fellow servants. And mind you, these are his fellow servants. And he ill-treated them. And finally, he was unfaithful because the Lord indicted him. The master indicted him for carousing. In verse 49, he began to eat and drink with drunkard. And he's behaving exactly what? Like the people in Noah's day. Remember in Noah's day, they were eating and they were drinking and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took all of, the, all of them away. And so that's a picture of a wicked servant because he did all these three things. He lived his life callously and recklessly without any thought that he would have to account for his stewardship. So as I bring this first session to a close, my question to all of us here is this. Are we all ready for Jesus' return? Or let me put this another way. If you were to die today, Right now, are you prepared to give an account to Jesus? You know, Scripture is clear to us that all of us as Christians will one day, in fact, not just Christians, everyone in this world, Christians, non-Christians alike, we will have to stand in judgment at the judgment seat of Christ. So my question to you is this, will you be prepared to account for your lives. Well, God says to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Or will he just say to you, away from me, you wicked servant. So which will he say to you? Let me close with these words of the late Donald Gray Barnhouse, an American pastor and theologian. He says this, let us live then in the light of eternity. If we do not, we are weighting the scales against our eternal welfare. We must understand that whatsoever a man soweth must be taken in its widest meaning and that every thought and intent of the heart will come under the scrutiny of the Lord at His coming. And we can be sure that at the judgment seat of Christ, there will be a marked difference between the Christian who has lived his life before the Lord clearly discerning what was for the glory of God and another Christian was saved in the rescue mission at the tag end of a depraved and vicious life or a nominal Christian saved on his deathbed after a life of self-pride, self-righteousness, self-love and self-sufficiency. And listen to what he says. All will be in heaven, but the differences will be eternal. 
and we may be sure that the consequences of our character will survive the grave and that we shall face those consequences at the judgment seat of Christ. Let us pray. You know, friends, I don't know where you are at in your spiritual life. And I don't know whether this is the first time that you're hearing such message. You know, I make no apologies for that. Because I believe in preaching the whole counsel of God that is found in the Bible. I believe our God is a God of love. But I also believe that our God is also a God of judgment. There's two sides of God. Yes, it is true that we are saved by grace. And we're going to talk about that more in our next session. But let me just say this. When God saved us, it is true, it is free. It's a free gift of God. There's nothing that you and I can do to earn salvation from God. None of us can. And so you got that right. But I want you to know this. After you are being saved, do you realize that's not the end of what the Bible tells us? Because we are saved for a purpose. And what is the purpose? The purpose is to do God's will. And the other purpose is also this, that God has saved us to be His representatives in this world. You know, a lot of times we ask, what is God's will for us? But you know, friends, if you truly know your Bible, you know God has already revealed His will to us. Just read the Gospel, the New Testament, the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are poor. When others persecute you, don't persecute back. When others say evil things of you, do good to them. Forgive when you are being persecuted. Spend time with God. Read His Word. Now all these are stated clearly in the Word of God. That's His will. If you want to know His will, that's His will for you and I. And the other thing is also this. That one of the things when God saved us, He wants us to increasingly grow into the likeness of His Son. And why is that important for us? It is important because if you are not growing to be like Jesus, then you're going to be a bad representation for the Gospel. If you're not increasingly growing to be like Jesus, being loving, being kind, being compassionate to others, being gracious. You know, friends, when you preach the gospel of love to others, people are not going to believe that. If you are a nasty Christian, you are a bad witness for God. And so it's true that God saved us by His grace. But God has also saved us to give us responsibilities. And the question is this. 
how have you been stewarding all these things that God has given you? And so today I hope if God has spoken to your hearts, now is still the time for repentance. There is still time. Don't wait until it's too late. And so individually here, you do your business with God. I'm going to allow you some time. You have your conversation with God. And truly, if you are repentant, just confess to the Lord how you have failed Him in all these areas that you have not... In fact, you have been just like those people in the days of Noah, living life as usual ever since you become a Christian, not taking... You know, all the things about eternity seriously. Not taking your faith seriously. Now this is a time where you come clean to Jesus and confess your sin. And say, Lord, I'm truly sorry. And then you tell him. Ask him to give him your grace, his grace upon you. That you may now onwards live for his glory. And so have a few moments. And then I will end in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this day. Thank you once again for your grace upon us and for allowing us to hear this message. We thank you that you have been so gracious to us and saved us. Thank you, Lord, for this salvation that you have wrought with the sacrifice of your Son. And we know that our Lord Jesus went through so much just to reconcile us to you. And we thank you. But today we also heard your word that with much grace that's been given to us, you have also given us a responsibility. And that is that we must lift our life for your glory. And you've heard our personal confession just now. And particularly for my brothers and sisters, Lord, who have confessed their nominal faith of how they've wasted so much of their life for not paying attention of living their life for your glory. Once again, we thank you for hearing our confession. Thank you for extending your forgiveness to us. And right now I ask, once again, for all of us, that your grace will continue to be upon us to enable us from henceforth to live for your glory. And above everything else, help us to be ready for Jesus' return at any time that we will not be afraid. Even if today is the last day for us here on earth, we can say securely and confidently that we can stand before your judgment seat and we have the faith to believe that because we have lived our life well for you, you will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. So help us, O Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Okay, so that ends our first session here. And the next three sessions, we're going to build upon this session here. We're going to expand a little bit more on what does it mean, all right, to be a, a faithful servant of Jesus. Okay, I hand this time over to whoever.